Oh, many years ago, when my elder daughter was eight years old, I lost her on Headley Heath. She'd wandered away from our picnic with a friend who was only age seven, and the friend's dog, thankfully rather a large dog. Um, but to cut a long story short, it took two hours before they were located and rescued, safe and sound, over a mile away on the other side of the heath by the heath ranger and his land rover. Uh, I'm sure you can imagine what I was going through and, and the parent of the other child um, during this time. Well, as the ranger delivered the children and we thanked him profusely, he glanced down at my hand and um, it was clasping a bunch of heather that I'd been picking before all this had happened and somehow, in the panic of everything, I just hung on to it. And um, he said, "Um, you're not allowed to pick the heather here, you know. Uh, (laughs) It's here for everyone to enjoy. And I've never picked heather or anything else from Headley Heath to this day. Well, why do I tell you that story? Well, I tell you that story because as we come today to consider the last six of the Ten Commandments given by God to the children of Israel in the desert, um, because I think it's important to remind ourselves once again, before we begin, that the Ten Commandments were given to God to the Israelites after they'd been rescued from Egypt. And they weren't something that had to be obeyed before they had any chance of being saved. The Headley Heath warden didn't say to me, I'm not going to search for your daughter because he'd been breaking the commons bylaws and picking the heather. Of course he didn't. And in a similar way, God is saying here to the Israelites, I've already rescued you from Egypt. You're my people. And so let's now have some ground rules of how this relationship should work. And this is what the Ten Commandments are. They're a response to what God has done. They're not a set of instructions that have to be kept in order to be saved. So they're not so much a a set of rules, even if the language in Exodus does sound a bit negative. You know, you shouldn't do this, that, and the other. Rather, they're the setting out of right relationships. The vertical relationships that the children of Israel are to enjoy with God himself and the horizontal relationships with each other. Mike explored the first four commandments last week, those vertical relationships that we have with God. And this week, we turn our thoughts to the horizontal relationship that we have with each other in the last six commandments. And I'd like to do three things this morning. First, I'd like to take a look at the way God used those last six commandments to reshape the horizontal relationships between the Israelites now that they were free from the Egyptian rules to help them in their desert journey to the promised land. Secondly, I want to fast forward to see how Jesus redefined those commandments, taking what had merely become a set of rules to the Jews of his day, and getting back to the heart of what God had intended for his people. And then finally, I want to take an honest look at where we all stand today. Because 
I'm sure that you now by now realize that we all fail to keep those commandments. We're a broken people, both in our relationships with God and with each other. But thankfully, it's not all bad news, as you'll hopefully see. So, firstly, relationships reshaped. When the Israelites were held captive in Egypt, they didn't have any free choice. They were subject to the laws that the Egyptians had imposed upon them, and pretty harsh laws they were too. But now, they're free. But they're not just free as individuals. They're free as a nation together, a nation with a purpose to travel together on a hazardous journey across the desert to the land that God had promised them. And so, at one level, the commandments that God gave the Israelites on Mount Sinai were practical instructions to keep them together as a cohesive unit on that dangerous journey. If they started quarreling and fighting with one another, they'd soon lose momentum, they'd fragment, and they'd give up on the journey. What were they most likely to quarrel about? Well, God knows our weaknesses intimately, and he knew that possessions were always going to be a potential source of discord. Hence the commandment not to steal, not to be envious of what other people had got. You could even go as far as to say that men shouldn't steal each other's wives in the commandment not to commit adultery. A strong family unit with a well-defined hierarchy was also important in maintaining social cohesion, since the commandment to honour your father and your mother. However, if we define the commandments solely as a set of societal rules that were useful to the Israelites to keep them on, to help them on their way, then I think we miss the point. It might make us feel better about not keeping them, because the commandments would not no longer necessarily apply to us. Because after all, we live in a very different society today as the Israelites did. But God gave those commandments for much deeper and far-reaching consequences than mere utilitarianism. And the clue to this comes from the previous chapter of Exodus, Exodus 19, when God says to Moses that he had chosen the Israelites to be his people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's Exodus 19, verse 6. And so, as God himself is holy, he wanted his chosen people to reflect his holy character. And we too are God's people through Christ. And that makes the last six commandments a lot more relevant to us than a mere set of societal rules. So let's look at them from the perspective of God's own character. But before we do that, let's remember that because we're all created in God's own image, we've actually been designed to live with the character and values of God himself. So when we cease to live that way, not only do we harm our relationship with God and with other people, then we also 
do violence to ourselves. The commandments are actually there for our own good. They're there and given by God because he cares about his people. Living to reflect God's daily character is the best way to live. This is what brings us the greatest blessing. For example, the truth of our being made in God's own image has particular relevance to the fifth commandment, that of honouring one's parents. From a New Testament perspective, we see that in Jesus' relationship with his heavenly Father and with his earthly parents, we see a model of love and mutual respect that echoes that Trinitarian love that abounds between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We were designed to live in a loving relationship with our earthly parents. That's how God intended it to be. Bearing the image of God within us makes, uh, gives us a deeper sense of the sixth commandment to do no murder. For in killing one another, we destroy the image of God in them something that we've got no right to do as created beings. One of the things that best characterized God in his dealings with the Israelites is his faithfulness. He's made a covenant with them, and however much the Israelites let him down, he kept faithful to that covenant. God desires us to reflect his holy character in faithful relationships with one another. And perhaps the most binding of human covenant relationships is that of marriage. And so the seventh commandment, not to commit adultery, exemplifies human faithfulness. The Israelites had experienced God's trustworthiness many times in their journey out of Egypt. God didn't renege on his promises to free them from the Egyptians. They knew that they could rely on him. And so God is saying in the eighth and ninth commandments not to lie or steal, that he wants his people to behave to each other in such a way that we're able to trust one another, both in words and in actions, as much as we can trust God himself. And finally, God had promised his provision to the Israelites in many ways, including provision for their material needs in the form of manna and quail when they were starving and grumbling in the desert. He's a generous God. He'll provide for all our needs. And he wants us to reflect his generosity rather than the opposite of being jealous or covetous as others. Hence, the 10th commandment, not to covet our neighbor's possessions. And looking at the commandments in this way makes them much more relevant and therefore much more challenging Let me pause for a moment here and just ask yourself how you're feeling. Are you perhaps doing a little bit of a mental checklist? You know, well, I might just about be able to keep commandments five to nine. At least they involve refraining from certain actions. But what about number 10? Can God really expect me to control my thoughts as I look about me and do a mental comparison with those that I see around me? Now, it's right to take the commandment seriously. But I wonder whether we're prepared not just to make a mental checklist to keep the commandments, but to strive to know the God behind them better.
to go beyond the rules and to deepen our relationship with God. Because Jesus moved beyond the rules. He redefined the commandments. By Jesus' time, good religious Jews had built up a huge legalistic framework around the Ten Commandments, describing a course of action for every occasion. God's laws had become a religious duty, a way of gaining his favor rather than living in response to his love. And Jesus brought us back to basics. He reminded the Pharisees that the commandments were really about living in loving relationships, loving relationships with both God and others. They weren't merely a set of moral codes and practices that were an end in themselves. Jesus summarized the commandments 6 to 10 with others about relationships with others as loving your neighbor as yourself. He redefined the commandments, digging into our heart attitudes rather than our actions. For instance, in God's eyes, being angry with your neighbor comes into the same category of wrongdoing as murder. And looking lustfully at a woman comes into a similar category as committing adultery with her. Well, is this good news or bad news for us? On the one hand, it makes a lot more sense than the legalistic system that the Jews had in place. But on the other, Jesus underlines underlines the sheer impossibility of keeping God's commandments. Whilst everyone here, at least I hope, could put up their hands and say that they kept the commandment not to murder anyone, can anyone say that they've never harbored angry thoughts about someone? I remember my small daughter once in a fit of screaming rage, screaming uh, screaming at me, I wish you were dead, mummy. As an adult, she's highly embarrassed now to recall that. But as a child, wasn't she simply vocalizing some of the angry thoughts that we adults try and suppress? The bottom line is that there's no way that we're totally able to keep God's commandments, however hard we might try. Mike spoke movingly last week about our need for a saviour. And the good news is that our being right with God is brought about by our faith in Jesus and not by adherence to the law. He used the analogy of the reset button You know, when you have a boiler or some piece of complex um, technological equipment that goes crazy, sometimes the only thing to do to set it right is to press that reset button and start again. God has offered us a reset button in Jesus. Faith in him brings us forgiveness and healing. And I want to um, press that reset button analogy a little bit further today and ask what might pressing the reset button look like in the light of the commandments that we've been considering today, those that focus on our relationship with others. Because the good news is that we can come to God and say sorry, whatever we've done, however we've broken his commandments, and be sure that we'll receive his forgiveness We can press that reset button and restore our relationship with him. But if we break one of the commandments that we've been considering today, 
not only do we break our relationship with God, but we're also likely to hurt other people and injure our relationships with them. So part of saying sorry is to say so to the person we have hurt, if that's practically possible. And that's a lot more scary than saying sorry to God. After all, we can be confident of our forgiveness when we come to God in true repentance for whatever we've done. We know that God will be faithful to his promise to forgive. We've seen it demonstrated in Jesus. But in coming to say sorry to another fallible human being, we have no certainty as to whether our apology will be accepted or flung back in our face. The reset button is in their hands and not ours. Now, I know that all of us here have fallen short of God's commandments for living in relationship with others, but I also know that all of us here have been the victims of other people's wrongdoing. You might have been burgled. You might have been cheated, lied to. You might have had a partner who was unfaithful. Make no mistake, these things hurt. They leave deep wounds. Don't underestimate the capacity that others' actions have to inflict harm upon us. But Jesus knew that if his followers were really going to reflect God's character, as in the Ten Commandments, then they should also strive to forgive others in response to the love and forgiveness that they themselves have received. Now, you see a glimmer of this in the Old Testament. The Israelites were instructed to forgive someone who had offended them, um, again, who had offended against them, three times. Not just once, but three times. Now, in the New Testament, Peter, thinking that he was being generous, suggested to Peter that, that sorry, suggested to, to Jesus that this might be extended to forgive people seven times, not three, but seven. And Jesus blows away all thought of a measured response in his reply to Peter. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. Restorative justice initiatives where victim and offender come together to repair harm and try and find a positive way forward. These initiatives have become very popular. They're very successful, both in reducing offending rates reoffending rates and helping the victims of crime emotionally. And small wonder, because they're based on sound biblical principles, enabling God's common grace, maximum space to work in. So you may find yourself in a position when someone is genuinely asking you for forgiveness for a harm that they've done to you. That reset button will be in your hands. Will you press it or not? One of the characterizing features of Christians is, or should be, their capacity to forgive others because they themselves know that they have been forgiven. And the great thing is that that act of forgiveness always brings blessing to us as well as we walk in the way that God intended for for us. God will always forgive us 
if we come to him in repentance. We can choose whether we go and seek another's forgiveness for the harm that we have done to them. And we can choose whether we forgive someone who comes to us to say sorry for hurting us in some way. But there are some situations where the reset button can't be reset in this world. The consequences of our actions or those of another against us are not always reversible. For instance, you can't bring back to life loved ones murdered by terrorist bomb blasts. Often relationships become so damaged because of the things that people inflict on one another that it's no longer possible to restore them. And even to contemplate forgiveness in some situations feels an impossibility. In the mess and the muddle of our broken world, in the violence and the vengeance that plays out on the world stage, and even sadly in some parts of the Christian church, does God offer eventual hope of restoration and renewal? I believe that he does. God's kingdom broke into this world when Jesus rose from the dead on that first Easter morning and broke the stranglehold that sin had over us. Our personal salvation is ensured. At the present time, we live in the now and not yet of God's kingdom. It's now because it's being inaugurated, but it's not yet because it's not yet been fully realized. However, in the book of Revelation, that we are promised that our world will finally be reborn. Heaven and earth will be renewed. Genesis begins with Adam and Eve's banishment from the garden, denied access to the fruit of the tree of life. Revelation ends with the tree of life bearing fruit for all and with the leaves for the healing of the nations. The picture language of renewed relationships prevents us from being too dogmatic about the detail. But I think that we can take hope and comfort from God's own words, as recorded by John. I am making everything new. Write this down, for my words are trustworthy and true. So I hope we've seen today that the Ten Commandments aren't a rule book but a response to God's love. Guidelines for living that reflect God's own character and that which enable us to live under his blessing the way that God intended it when he created us. God's commandments are a challenge to us all because all of us without exception fall short of his standards for us and we also fall short of one another. But the good news is that in Jesus we know that God will forgive us and restore our relationship with him. We simply ask him. As we look around our broken world, we're called to Jesus, by Jesus not to despair, but to share his healing love with others, forgiving others who have wronged us and seeking forgiveness ourselves for the wrongs that we've done. It isn't easy, but it can bring great blessing both to others and to ourselves.
And I pray that we might all experience the richness of God's renewing grace towards us. And as we do so, that we men then might bring that grace to others. Amen.